I've been studying Second Kings chapter 18, 19, and 20 for the last several days, which is just an incredible sort of section of Second Kings. It's covering the story, the sort of the, the historical and biblical account of the king of Judah by the name of Hezekiah. Hezekiah is, of course, a very significant figure in the annals of all those kings, mostly because we know that because the historian spends three chapters on him, dedicating them to him. And it's fascinating, just as a way of sort of introduction to this guy, that he is known as, as it says there in verse 1 of 2 Kings chapter 18, actually, he is known as the son of Ahaz. If you remember, Ahaz is that really detestable guy from 2 Kings chapter 16 who was bringing in all sorts of horrible worship and he was making deals with the Assyrian kings. He was not a good man, not a well-to-do king, not a favorable king at all, which makes it all the more remarkable, I would say, that his son, Hezekiah, is received and regarded with such high esteem. Notice how the historian describes him. 2 Kings 18, look at verse 1. Now it came to pass, in the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 20 and 5 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 20 and 9 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father did. Notice verse 5. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. That's quite a statement. There was none like Hezekiah before or after him. He was a paragon of kings. He was one that was living so closely to that Davidic ideal of faithfulness and devotion to Yahweh. He stood out. And indeed, as we get to the tail end of 2 Kings... Hezekiah and eventually his great-grandson Josiah stand as sort of beacons of hope. Beacons of light and truth and faithfulness against a very bleak background of sin and darkness and ruin. He stands out because he's so faithful. He stands out because he is so doggedly committed to the things of Jehovah God. For the next two weeks... We're going to do is sort of consider the life and reign of Hezekiah as a whole. Spending a considerable amount of time in these three chapters. Next week, I'm going to look at Hezekiah's life as a whole, spanning chapter 18 to chapter 19. But this morning, what I want to do is focus our attention, and I'm going to try and be really focused. Focus specifically on this really significant incident that occurs right here in the middle of this portion of history. It occurs in 2 Kings 18. Look at verse 13. Now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah did Sennacherib, king of Assyria, come up against all the fenced, that is, defensed or fortified cities of Judah, and took them. So you see right here is a very significant historical moment in the lives of the people of Judah, but also the world. And we ought to perk up because this, this chapter, chapter 18 and 19 of 2 Kings, is significant because what we see here is recorded two other times. 
It's recorded in 2 Chronicles 32, and it's also recorded in Isaiah 36 and 37. If something is recorded, a whole entire story is repeated three times in one book, you ought to pay attention. God's trying to tell us something from this narrative, I think. He's repeated it three times. Sort of on the global scene, if you will, the world powers during these days were going through a bit of reshuffling. So the old king of Assyria, Sargon II, he has passed away. He's, he died, leaving the, the throne of Assyria sort of vacant, sort of this vacuum of power, if you will. And after his death, many of the, the occupied states that Assyria had under their control began revolting against Assyrian rule. They started to say, we can rule for ourselves. We're going to revolt against Assyria. They're going through a transition. They're a little weak. And among them is Judah. Look at verse 7 of the same chapter where it says, And the Lord was with him, that is Hezekiah, and he prospered. He went forth and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and served him not. He sort of goes back on what his dad did and his dad before him did in terms of making deals with Assyria. He rebels against them. He's part of the revolt. There's lots of shuffling of power here. And yet that's when Sennacherib, the new king of Assyria, he comes to power. He comes to the throne and he launches this massive campaign, this crusade against all of these occupied states to try and take them back. He's launching assaults all over those regions trying to reassert Assyrian dominance. And that's what brings him here to verse 13. Where he comes up against Jerusalem. And here Hezekiah finds himself. Sort of face to face with this overlord of Assyria. Who's not looking for a little sit down chat. He's out for blood. His nation has been embarrassed and put to shame by these supposed rebels. And he's about to squash that rebellion. How does Hezekiah respond? How does he respond when the enemy came knocking at his door? I want to consider that this morning. I want to consider how to, likewise, we ought to respond in similar circumstances. No, we perhaps don't have a foreign tyrant who comes to our door and asks us to kneel or it'll mean our heads. No, that's not what I'm saying. But there are obviously times in our lives, times of trial. Times of temptation, which, if you will, are times when the enemy appears to be knocking at our door. And how do we respond? How do we respond when the enemy comes knocking? How we respond makes all the difference in the world. I want to notice three things this morning about trials and how we respond to them. The first thing this morning is this. Trials are revealing. Trials are revealing. Hezekiah is made aware of this crusade, so to speak, by Sennacherib and this idea that he wants to overtake all of those city-states that rebelled. And he decides, Hezekiah does, that it would be in his best interest to send his former overlord a letter of apology. Notice verse 14 of chapter 18. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sends to the king of Assyria to Lachish, saying, I have offended thee. 
Return from me that which, excuse me, that which thou puttest on me will I bear. And the king of Assyria appointed unto Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. At that time did Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, overlaid and gave it to the king of of Assyria. Essentially, this letter, he says, oops, my bad, Sennacherib, sorry. Here's some money. Do you want some money? I'll pay. I'll give you a blank check. Just don't invade. Don't come to town with your men. <laughs> so he sends him this letter. Uh, uh, Sennacherib sends him a letter back. Give me all your money. He gives him all the silver and gold. And indeed, he's taking money out of the temple, which is meant to be a really stunning moment. Especially, just, just, read if, just read really quickly uh, verses 1 through 7. He's this faithful king who is tearing down strongholds, tearing down high places. He's breaking down idols, breaking images. Anything that is not in favor of Yahweh, Hezekiah is against. And yet, he is approached by this enemy and he folds. We're meant to be stunned by this Hezekiah. We're meant to be stunned and surprised by this contrast. Whereas before, he seemed so staunch and faithful. And here, he seems to cave in the immense of this trial and this pressure. So a second Snecker responds. And he sends some of his officials to the gates of Jerusalem. Because he's not really looking for money. Sennacherib's not interested in more tribute money, perhaps, even though he receives some. He is looking for surrender. He's looking for Hezekiah's hand in surrender. That's what he's after. So notice verse 17. And the king of Assyria sent Tartan and Rapsaris and Rabshakeh from Lachish to king Hezekiah with a great host against Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. When they were come up, they came and stood up by the conduit of the upper pool, which is in the highway of the fuller's field. And when they had called to the king, there came out to them Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, which was over the, house of, over the household in Shebna, the scribe and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. So essentially what you have here is you have three sort of officials from Assyria and three officials from Judah. And they come and they have this conference, so to speak. Outside of the gates of Jerusalem. You have these three officials. They begin talking. And this spokesman. That word Rabshakeh. And the King James in verse 17. Is actually a title. It literally just means mouthpiece or spokesman. And he stands up. And he's speaking on behalf of Sennacherib. The king of Assyria. And he asks this incredibly pointed question. He says in verse 19. And Rabshakeh, the spokesman, said unto them, Speak ye now to Hezekiah, Thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? What are you trusting in? Where is your confidence? What are you relying on in these days to make your little supposed puny rebellion? And what he does is he proceeds to reveal... That Judah's loyalties were not quite as fully or solely with Jehovah as perhaps we might have thought. Their confidence was somewhere else. In fact, it was with someone else. Notice verse 20. Thou sayest... 
But they are but vain words. This is the spokesman speaking. I have counsel and strength for the war. Now on whom dost thou trust? That thou rebellest against me? You can see how offended this messenger is speaking on behalf of his overlord. Why are you rebelling against me, the great king of Assyria? And he continues, verse 21. Now behold, thou trustest upon the staff of this bruised reed, even upon Egypt. On which if a man lean, it will go into his hands and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, unto all that trust on him. And he continues. Down through verse 25, calling out to Judah, calling out Hezekiah. For his misplaced trust, this enamored sort of moment in which he had become enamored with the chariots of Egypt. He calls them out on it. They're not worthy to be trusted. Egypt is a bruised reed. They're a weak ally. And your trust in them will prove to be vain and to your shame, he says. And I think there's a boatload of irony right here in this text. Judah is trusting Egypt. He's, they're trusting in the chariots of Egypt. Descends the irony. Thousands of years before this moment, the very chariots of Egypt were those from which the hand of Yahweh had delivered his people at the Red Sea. And now they have come to trust in them in their moment of crisis. And it's not as though God warn didn't warn his people of the pitfalls of trusting in chariots there's several verses all throughout the scriptures which warn of this idea your trust in chariots is misplaced misguided it is a loser's errand david says in psalm 33 a horse is a vain thing for safety neither shall he deliver any by his great strength don't trust in it It's a bruised reed. It'll come to your ruin. And in fact, in this very moment, keep your finger there. Go to Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30. The prophet Isaiah is incredibly influential in this particular moment of history. And in Isaiah 30, and even in the next chapter, chapter 31, he calls out Hezekiah for this gross alliance he's made with Egypt. Notice Isaiah 30 verse 1. Woe to the rebellious children, saith the Lord, that take counsel, but not of me, and that cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, that walk to go down into Egypt, and have not asked at my mouth, to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh, and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the strength of Pharaoh be your shame and the trust in the shadow of Egypt your confusion. He calls them out. It's going to be to your shame, the prophet Isaiah says, that you're trusting and making this allegiance with Egypt. We're not told why he had made this deal. Or perhaps he had made a deal as other kings had with Egypt sort of to have in his back pocket. At least I have Egypt. If Assyria comes knocking, I can count on the Pharaoh and he will send his chariots over. Perhaps not replacing his trust with Yahweh, but a little bit equal to it. He's trusting them. As here Isaiah is saying, you're going down there and placing your trust in this king over against me. You can imagine how 
frustrated that perhaps made Jehovah God. To see his people going to the place from which he had delivered them for their trust, for deliverance. It's a sad irony. I think it's even more ironic that it takes, it takes an Assyrian to call Hezekiah out on this. The Assyrian comes knocking at his door. And he says, you're trusting in a bruised reed. You're trusting in Egypt. They're going to they're gonna spell your ruin. I think the most severe indictment perhaps on this moment of crisis, this moment of trial in Hezekiah's life is just the fact that it appears from the outside that an Assyrian has more wisdom than he does. You're trusting in chariots. And yeah, he's trying to, he's trying to dominate him. He's trying to intimidate him. But even within that intimidation, there's a kernel of truth. You're trusting in something that cannot lead to your victory. It's going to prove to be fateful. And this is coming from an Assyrian spokesman and a prophet of Yahweh. I think we need that sometimes. I think sometimes we need a good sort of Assyrian smack on the mouth. To wake us up. To shock us into realization that we've begun, we've digressed into trusting in, in something else. Some device, some program, some other thing has now zapped and, and evaporated our trust in Yahweh and it's taken it somewhere else. Sometimes we need someone to shock us into that realization. I think that's what trials do. Trials are sometimes revealing They expose the misplaced confidence that we have grown to have in something that's not God. They reveal that in stark ways sometimes. They reveal that our faith might not be what we think it is. We're trouncing along. We're making lots of, uh, of, of great uh, strides. We're, we're talking about devotion. We're, we're reading our Bible all the time. We're talking about faith and going to church and all that. But sometimes how much of that is lip service? How much are we just doing that to keep up appearances? We open the Bible app on our phone so we keep the streak going. <laughs> Look at how many days I've kept the Bible app open, but we don't really invest. <laughs> We're using it as a way to put on airs, to put on a show perhaps. And actually our trust is in something else. Our ability, our skill, our talent, our occupation. We're putting our trust somewhere else. That is the chariot of Egypt for us. We're trusting in something that's not God. We're trusting in a bruised reed. We're trusting in something that will lead to our shame, to our doom. And sometimes that's exactly why God allows seasons of trial to come about at all. To deflate those those sort of ways in which we try to put on airs. To expose the foolish confidence that we've put in something other than himself. Because he's the soul and he wants to be the soul object of our trust. You know, sometimes like Hezekiah, even though he starts out faithful and devoted, he gets distracted. How many of you this morning, you don't have to raise your hands. How many of you feel like you're getting smacked in the mouth by something? Something has come up unexpected. Maybe a shortfall of finances. 
Maybe you're, you're out of work. Maybe you're seeing something happening in your children's life that you, you didn't expect, you didn't anticipate. How much of it do you think is allowed by God to wake you up? To give you an Assyrian smack in the mouth. To say, you're trusting in something that's not me. Sometimes trials are revealing. But secondly, back to our text in 2 Kings chapter 18. Sometimes trials are deceiving. Sometimes trials are deceiving. The spokesman back in 2 Kings 18 for Sennacherib. He is talking a big game. He's talking a lot about all the things that he's going to do and all the things that Snickerib is going to make the Judas, the people of Judah do. And interestingly enough, he's talking in Hebrew. He's talking in their native language. And Hezekiah's officers don't like this too much. Those three that Hezekiah sent out, they start protesting. They plead, please talk in some other language because we don't want people on the wall hearing what you're talking about and freaking out and causing a massive commotion inside the city. Let's just... Can we please talk somewhere else and talk in some other language? <laughs> he says that in verse 26. It says, Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna, and Joah, unto, said unto Rebshekah, Speak, I pray thee, to thy servants in the Syrian language. For we understand it. And talk not with us in the Jews' language, in the ears of the people that are on the wall. But Rebshekah, the spokesman, said unto them, Hath my master sent me to thy master and to thee to speak these words? Hath he not sent me to the men which sit on the wall, that they may drink their own dung and drink their own piss with you? (laughs) Strong language. He even sort of raises his voice, verse 28. Excuse me. Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language and spake, saying, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. So he starts to get a little louder. Well, you want me to talk quieter in a different language? Here's what I have to say. <laughs> Trying to get the people on the wall to hear what he has to say, to scare them in their boots. And the gist of his message, if you read down through it, is the other folly, the other folly of trusting in Hezekiah or his Lord. This king that you have, that this king that you have on the throne, he is a deceiver who worships at the feet of a deceitful God. King Hezekiah, he's a liar, and he worships a God who is also a liar. That's this messenger's message. Notice. Verse 29, then thus saith the king, let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you out of his hand. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, the Lord will surely deliver us, and this city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus saith the king of Assyria, make an agreement with me by a present and come out to me, and then eat ye every man of his own vine and every one of his fig tree, and drink ye every one the waters of his cistern. Until I come and and take you away to a land like your own land. A land of corn and wine. A land of bread and vineyards. A land of oil and oil, oil, olive and of honey. That ye may live and not die. And hearken not unto Hezekiah when he persuadeth you saying the Lord will deliver us. Do you notice what he just did? He's trying to make being displaced and resettled as Assyrian refugees sound good. He's putting a spin on being displaced and resettled. If you make an agreement with me, I'll give you what you want. I'm going to resettle you, but it'll be fine. It'll be great. It'll be awesome. Come with me. It'll be awesome. You'll have all the stuff in my life. It's propaganda. It's fear-mongering. 
But notice how lofty his words are. Verse 33. Have any of the gods of the nations delivered at all his land out of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and those of Arpad? Where are the gods of Servarvaim and Hena and Eva? Have they delivered Samaria out of mine hand? Who are they? Among all the gods of the countries that have delivered their country out of mine hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of mine hand, you can see exactly what Sennacherib thinks. Those are the gods. Where are they? Did they deliver their people? When I invaded, did they stand up? Did their gods defend them? No. They crushed. They folded. They were decimated like all the rest. And your gods are going to be no different. You think your God, the God of Jerusalem, is going to save you out of the hand of Sennacherib? This is Sennacherib. And yes, I know, this is his messenger speaking these words. But clearly, these are the words of Sennacherib being sort of fed through this messenger. It's his thoughts that are coming out. And clearly, he sees himself as a God. He poses as one who can give everything that Judah ever wants. He's going to bring Judah back into abundance. Don't listen to that liar, Hezekiah. He does not have your best interest. I can build you back better. Oops. Sorry, that was an inside joke. I'm going to move on. Um, But he pounds his chest in a really smug, self-satisfied way. Look at me, I can deliver you. I got what you want. I got what you need. Your God's a liar. Why would you resist? Why would you resist? It's so useless. It's so futile. Sennacherib then echoes, jump with me to chapter 19 and look at verse 8. Because essentially what happens, uh, just to jump ahead a little bit, uh, the messenger leaves and Hezekiah and his men, they go back to their temple and they start praying. And then Sennacherib hears and he hears of this sort of moderate resistance to his message. So he sends Hezekiah a letter addressed to him. Verse 8 of chapter 19. So Rebshekah returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna. For he had heard that he was departed from Lachish. And when he had heard say of Turka, king of Ethiopia, behold, he has come out to fight against thee. He sent messengers again unto Hezekiah saying, thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, let not thy God... And whom thou trustest deceive thee, saying, Jerusalem shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, thou hast heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands by destroying them utterly. Thou and thou shalt be delivered. How the gods of the nations delivered them which my fathers have destroyed, as Gozan and Haran and Rezveth, and the children of Eden which were in Thelasar. Where is the king of Hamath and the king of Arpad and the king of the city of Servarvaim and Hena and Eva? You can see he's repeating the message. Have any of these gods ever done anything? Have any of their people ever withstood me? I'm Sennacherib. And once again, the intent of this Assyrian monarch is to stir up no shortage of doubt and distrust and the people of God, most notably their king Hezekiah. That's why, if you notice, I'm not going to go back and read it, but if you read verses 29 through 35 of chapter 18, eight times the word deliver appears. And here, just here, in this little letter that Hezekiah sends, or excuse me, that Sennacherib sends to Hezekiah in chapter 19, deliver again, it appears three times. And the whole point of it is all, your God can't deliver you, but I can. He can't. 
Your God, he's a nothing God. He can't rescue you. He can't save you. He is just like the rest. Put your trust in him and you'll end up in the scrap heap of all of my victories. That's that's Sennacherib's mindset. And I don't think this is too much of a stretch to say that I think Hezekiah was, yes, indeed, shaking in his boots right about now. This is Sennacherib. The lords of the Assyrians who weren't very much well known for being good-natured and hospitable folk. (laughs) They'd rather put the the heads of their enemies on spikes outside the cities than have tea and crumpets in their home. They were not known for being nice. And on top of all of that, not only has all of this come on to Hezekiah, it's bearing down on his shoulders. It's indeed a trial of great moment. Not only that, but now Hezekiah's faith has been exposed. It's been brought into the light. And he's been revealed that he might not be as faithful as some people might think. As even perhaps he might think. And perhaps even now, he has a, a small, perhaps it's a growing modicum of doubt that... Maybe they're right. Maybe, maybe God can't intervene. Maybe he can't deliver. Why would God, maybe he starts thinking, and imagine that he did. Why would he start coming to the aid of such a failure like me? I've reneged on my word of faithfulness to him. Why would he come to the aid of a screw-up king like me? Trials are deceiving. They can swindle our hope and our trust, much like I think in this moment Hezekiah's was or almost was. They can dupe us into thinking that our God, he's incapable of, or at least sometimes disinterested in delivering us. Because why would he after we failed? Why would he after what we've done? You know, that's what exactly the devil wants you to believe when you face trial. He wants you in that place, distrusting, doubting, questioning whether God can or will or even wants to rescue you from your moments of severe hardship and confusion and struggle. Satan knows if you believe in Jesus, the blood of Jesus is covering your sin. Satan knows he can't do anything to affect that. He cannot unredeem you. Satan knows that. He's pretty smart. But what he can do is he can leave you utterly prostrate and defeated on your belly, having no sort of effort at all when trials come. How? Because he wants you to look up in the middle of that trial and think God is not up to the task. That's what he wants you to think. God can't do it. And why would he? Why would he? Look what I've done. Look at the mess I've made. Look at the ways in which I just promised God I wouldn't go back to that thing. And now I keep going back to that thing. And this trial comes. Why, why would God help me now? Trials are deceiving. Sometimes they can be commandeered by the evil one. To get you to further into that place of doubt and distrust. Over who God is and over what he can do. And that's exactly where he wants you. That's exactly where Satan wants you. He flaunts your failures and your face, and he convinces you that trusting in God, that's not just unheard of, it's absurd. 
Trials are deceiving. What are we to do in them? Trials are deceiving. Trials are revealing. But lastly, trials are humbling. Trials are humbling. Because in this moment of humiliation, watch what Hezekiah does. Sennacherib's spokesman finishes his spiel, finishes pounding his chest. And the officials of Hezekiah are silent. They don't say a word. Notice verse 36 of chapter 18. But the people held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's command was saying, answer him not. Then came Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, which was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. They came to Hezekiah with their clothes and clothes rent and told him the words of Rabshakeh. They come back into the throne room. They report of the ways in which this spokesman has just flagrantly and blatantly spoken so much words of vile contempt for their God. And you know that they're Grieving, And perhaps I would say genuine in their grief at this moment because their clothes are being torn. The sign of abject despair. And I think right here is where I, I think there's a light that goes on in Hezekiah's mind perhaps and soul. Because immediately something clicks and he realizes maybe perhaps now how foolish this trust is in Egypt. How misguided he was in his faith. And so he immediately sends for Isaiah the prophet. That eminent prophet of Yahweh. Give me some advice. (laughs) He sends for him in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 19. Because this moment was too great. He had no more reserves of strength. He was weak. He was undone. He needed a word from the Lord. And notice, so he sends word. He sends those three. Go get Isaiah. Isaiah sends a word back. Notice his his message. Isaiah, or excuse me, uh, 2 Kings 19 verse 6. And Isaiah sent to them, Thus shall you say to your master, Thus saith the Lord. Be not afraid of the words which thou hast heard, which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will send a blast upon him, and he shall hear a rumor, and shall return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Thus saith the Lord, unlike Hezekiah, if you read his words, he says, well, let me just see. Verse 4, notice Hezekiah's words. It may be that the Lord thy God will hear the words of this messenger, and he'll take action. Maybe. And what is Isaiah's words back to him? Thus saith the Lord. You can be sure of these words because these are God's words. And they're the only words that mattered. And Yahweh, yes, he's going to take action. He's going to deliver you of his own accord. You only need to believe. And at the reception of these words, you jump down to verse 14. Hezekiah finally does perhaps what he should have done all along. And he prays. This wondrous, momentous prayer. A prayer that I would say we could spend sermons itself on of what he prays. But suffice it to say, his words just illustrate, I think, how humbled he was in the face of this trial. It was too much. It was too much for him. 
So he confesses it to the Lord. He, he, he starts talking about his situation there in verses 14 through 19. And he's telling God, here's the predicament I am in. And he pleads with him, come to the aid of your people. Come to the aid of your king and take action on our behalf. If for no other reason, God, if for no other reason, just to uphold the glory of your name. Notice he says that in verse 19. Now therefore, O Lord our God, I beseech thee, I beg thee, save thou us out of his hand, the hand of the king of Assyria, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord God, even thou only. Save us not. Yeah, I want your rescue. I want the victory. I need the victory. But more important than all of that is your glory. God, work our deliverance in such a way that you are glorified above all else. What a humble prayer. A prayer of humble belief and I would even say desperate faith. And that's exactly the type of prayer God loves to answer. God loves He delights in answering the prayers of the desperate. And his answer here comes again through the prophet Isaiah. Notice after this prayer it says then Isaiah verse 20. The son of Amoz sent to Hezekiah saying again. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. That which thou hast prayed to me. Against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, awesome words I have heard. I've heard your prayers. I've heard your requests. I've heard your pleas. I've heard your cries. And guess what? I'm going to do something about it. Isaiah's message begins and he, again, I could spend multiple sermons perhaps on just this message from Isaiah. And the ways in which it is so expansive and right on point. But briefly, he begins in verse 22 by putting Sennacherib back in his place. Reminding him of who you are dealing with. Notice he says, whom hast thou reproached and blasphemed? And against whom hast thou exalted thy voice and lifted up thine eyes on high? Hey, Sennacherib, who do you think you're dealing with? Even against the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel is a name that you'll see appear here and actually 26 if I can count them right. 26 odd times throughout the rest of the scriptures. Most of those appearing in Isaiah. This would be like calling someone by their full name. Usually it's used when you wildly want to make a point. This is the Holy One of Israel. That's who you're dealing with. And then he proceeds, so so he sort of quotes Sennacherib in verses 23 and 25. And he talks about all the ways in which he's boasting and the things that he's done, all the the great triumphs Sennacherib has made. And essentially, Isaiah is calling him out. You think that you have done those things? You think that you have accomplished all of those great victories? It's actually God. He's the one that's given them to you, buddy. See, the whole point of all this is that Sennacherib might have been raging in the face of the living God, the Holy One of Israel. But his rage was almost laughable in the eyes of God. He was kind of snickering at this raging king. Because really what it appeared was like a chihuahua trying to bark at a lion. That's that's what you look like, Sennacherib. You can't do anything to the lion of Judah. 
That's exactly the point. Notice verse 28. Because thy rage against me and thy tumult is come up into mine ears, therefore I will put my hook in thy nose and my bridle in thy lips, and I will turn thee back the way by which thou camest. This was going to be a severe and great and mighty and swift humiliation of this staunch and proud Assyrian king. God says, I'm going to turn you like a beast of burden. I'm going to turn you into a mule. I'm going to turn you around. I'm going to thwart every plan, every fearsome threat that you've made against my people. I'm going to turn it back on yourself. And you're going to go your way in shame and defeat like a dog between his, with his tail between his legs. Notice verse 32. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city. Nor even, notice how comprehensive God's assurance and defense of his people is. He's not going to come into the city. He's not even going to shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with a shield, nor cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and he shall not come into the city, saith the Lord. Not a single Assyrian arrow, not a single Assyrian shield is going to flash in the light of the Jerusalem sun. And he's not even going to be able to make any siege ramps out of Jerusalem dirt. Because he's going to be turned away. That's how sure God's defense is of his people. It's going to be a swift humiliation Swift deliverance on behalf of God's people. Because God took it upon himself to see his people's plight and come to their aid and defend them. Notice verse 34. For I will defend this city to save it. Why? For my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Because God is a man of his word. 2 Samuel 7, the promise given to David, there will always be a king on your line. God is living up to that promise, preserving the line of kings of Judah and preserving the hope that all of we have that Jesus is the Messiah. God took it upon himself to defend his people, and this is what he delights in doing. He loves coming to the aid of those who cry out, on, cry out for him. And notice how he takes action. This, this is awesome. I love verses 35 through 37. Notice what happens. And it came to pass that night, perhaps the night that Sennacherib received this message via the post mail. And he comes, reads this message the very same night that the angel of the Lord went out. And smote in the camp of the Assyrians an hundred and fourscore and five thousand. A hundred and eighty-five thousand Assyrian soldiers are dead. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt in Nineveh. And it came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of, of Nishrach, his god, that Adaramelech and Sherezer, his son, smote him with the sword. And they escaped into the land of Armenia. And Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his stead. Swift defeat, utter decimation and humiliation of Sennacherib's cause. God's people were saved, and not a single one of them lifted a finger. 
An angel came. An angel of the Lord smote all those, those soldiers dead. Snicker wakes up, sees the corpses, freaks out, hightails it out of town. And then a couple of years later, he gets killed by his own sons. Trials are humbling. They force us to get on our knees. And I think that's the point. I think the point of trials is to get us on our knees because we don't have strength to withstand them. We don't have the ability to resist them. And I think sometimes we think that we do. We think that we can weather them on our own. We don't need outside assistance. We don't need outside aid. We can get through this on our own strength, on our own wisdom, by our own guts, in our own grit. And I think that's nothing but pride on our part, because you see, my friends, the trials you and I face were never meant to be faced by ourselves. The things you endure, the things that are coming for you, perhaps you perceive them, perhaps you are in them right now. You were never meant to face those by yourself. Just like Hezekiah, you have a God who delights in coming to the defense of his own people. He just wants to hear from you. Yahweh took action on behalf of his king when he prayed to him. And I would say even still, even to this day, he relishes, he delights in coming to the aid of those who cry out to him in their times of anguish and trial and struggle and grief and hardship. Don't let anyone fool you into thinking that when you're going through one of those seasons that you have to keep it all bottled up inside. Don't let anyone see cracks. Don't let anyone see the the splinters in your faith. Cry out to God, my friends. He wants to hear you. Don't let anyone deceive you into thinking that you have to have a faith that's all put together in order for God to do something with you. He does everything through those who are broken because he delights in taking broken people and making something beautiful out of them and doing beautiful things with them. This is God our Father. He delights in working through trial. It's not always fun. (laughs) It's not always Decent, it's not always yippee-ki-yay, but this is how God works. He works through trial. He works through those moments of anguish and grief and despair. And the wonderful point of all of this is trusting in God in trial does not mean that we get issued a, hand, a, a sword and a spear to, to fight the trials, to resist all the temptations. Actually, it means this. Trusting in God in trial means we fight our battles in the most upside-down way possible because we fight by getting on our knees. That's how you fight. You want to fight off the wiles of the devil? Get on your knees and pray. And pray to this one, the same one who is working here this moment, the Holy One of Israel, who works out your deliverance and mine all by himself through his own zeal. And the breathtaking truth of all of this is this, is that when we kneel and trust in the Lord to deliver us, we're trusting in the deliverance that's already won. It's already sure. It's already done. The victory. We can sing that song, Victory in Jesus. Because it's ours. It's ours. It's gifted to us in the Son of God himself. See, this is awesome. 
This is what I love about studying the Bible. This is what gets my juices flowing. Verse 35, the angel of the Lord. Remarkable Old Testament figure. Always perk up when you read that phrase, angel of the Lord. It's the same angel who appeared to Jacob with whom Jacob wrestled all night long in Genesis 32. It's the same angel who appeared to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3. It's the same angel who visited Joshua on the eve of battle before they were going into battle against the city of Jericho. In Joshua chapter 5, it's the same angel who greeted Gideon and gave him courage to face the Midianites in Judges chapter 6. It's the same angel who appeared with the Hebrew 3 shadowing Meshach and Abednego in the fiery furnace that Nebuchadnezzar threw them in and delivered them out of that furnace unscathed. Same angel. It's Malach Yahweh. The angel of the Lord. The son of God. That's who came and won the day on behalf of the people who prayed to them. And they didn't have to lift a finger. Not even a pinky was raised and grasped a sword. And their victory was certain. Because Malak Yahweh fought for them. The angel of the Lord won the victory on behalf of the people who kneeled in front of him. And my friends, that's what he does for every single one here in this room here this morning. He answers our prayers in the most wondrous way of all. Reminding us that he's already won. We can fight on our knees because the victory's over. The day is his. Jesus won. When you're fighting against all those temptations that come your way. When the trials come. And they appear to swindle your faith, my friends. The victory is yours, not because you're so faithful, not because you're a superhero Christian. The victory is yours through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord, who gives us his victory. And by faith, invites us to share in his. This is our God, our deliverer, the Holy One of Israel. Let us pray.